Uh, this is probably one of the most important things, the most important attitudes and heart attitudes that we can pass on to our children and to those around us. And we have a, a very big responsibility in this as well. Guys, there are, there are certain issues and things in life that are of major eternal importance. Uh, not, not just questions and not just things like, what am I going to wear today? And, or where will I go? Or even what will I eat? But what am I living for? That's an eternal important question that we should ask ourselves probably every single day. What am I really living for? Guys, they're the, they're the major issues of life. They're the kind of things that either you get right or your life is sort of a hot mess and your future is shaky at best. And it's these issues and it's these topics that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. We've been taking a long, hard look of things that are of eternal importance. I've been asking this question, how do I really live for God? And we're going to continue to look at those things this morning, and we're going to look at a, a topic that can be rather challenging for some people, um, but I hope that it is encouraging and uplifting as we end this morning in Jesus' day and in his ministry, one of the things that made him the most irate, the most angry, was the attitude of the Pharisees when it came to dismissing large issues of life, large questions of life. What am I living for? How do I live for God? In favor of smaller and very trivial things. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, and what's going to be up here is from the Amplified Version of the Bible, and it says this, it'll sound familiar. Jesus says, you spiritually blind guides who strain out a gnat, consuming yourselves with minuscule matters, and swallow a camel, ignoring and violating God's precepts. See, the Pharisees were really good at this. They had all the little minutia of everything down. They had everything buttoned up, but they were forgetting about the big picture, the eternal perspective. And in essence, Jesus is saying here in Matthew 23, and what he said constantly to the Pharisees is great. Great, guys. I mean, you've, you have this really tiny microscopic issue figured out, but you're ignoring the bigger issues of life. I liken it to almost a, a, like a couple who finds themselves in marriage counseling. And when a couple sits down in marriage counseling, and I've experienced this a little bit in my limited amount of counseling that I've done, my limited experience, and you actually get a couple talking about the larger topic of marriage, it's, also, it's often, guys, the non-issue stuff that they're focused on and the big issue stuff that they're not focused on. And once they get their eyes wrapped around what really matters in their marriage, they get renewed and they get restored. And it's really the same, honestly, for any relationship. When you can get two people in a room who come in disagreeing, but you can have them look at the larger, bigger picture... It solves a lot of things. Guys, a similar truth applies to life in general. We often sweat the small stuff, don't we? Zero in on the essentials of life, the important stuff, the main thing. It's what we said in the very first week for us to put first things first. 
And as we said in week one, it's all about priority. We're going to talk again this morning about priority just from a different part of Matthew chapter 6. It's been said this way about priority. If you put the world first and the world and worldly things and earthly things are your treasure, you'll find that it gets moth-eaten and corroded in your hands. But if you put God first, you get the whole world thrown in. But this morning we're going to find out, and I really believe, guys, this is a super, super relevant topic for most of us in here. I'll just ask a question. Anybody in this room ever had anxiety? Anybody in this room ever worried about anything in their life? Everybody. That's why I love God's word. It's like, ah, that's a crusty book. We don't pay. It's so relevant. Jesus knows our hearts so much. Guys, the enemy of priority is anxiety and worry. Every single time. It shows up here, and what we're going to just get ready to read in Matthew chapter 6, it shows up in spades. Guys, the command to not worry or not be anxious is found at least five times if not six, depending on the translation that you use, right here at the end of Matthew chapter 6, I encourage you to grab your Bibles, grab a device. If you don't have either one of those, there's a Bible in front of you, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We have spent the last three weeks, I never imagined, honestly, I've just kind of been following the Spirit's lead. I didn't intend to be in Matthew chapter 6 for three straight weeks, but it's been good. There's a lot to exhaust in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to turn towards the end of Matthew chapter 6. We have really read the beginning and kind of the middle section. And we come to the end here in verse 25. And here's what Jesus says, not just to his disciples, but he says to today's disciples, to us as well. I tell you not to worry. Don't be anxious about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? And look at the birds. They don't plant, they don't harvest, they don't store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all of your wor- I love this verse right here, by the way, 27. Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? I want to ask a question this morning. It's not really a rhetorical question. Has all of your worrying and fretting and anxiety in life ever done anything to add to your life? And yet we still continue to do it. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or they don't make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory, all of his riches, all of his wealth was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father, listen to this, your heavenly Father, we talked about that last week, this concept of Father, He already knows all of your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, live for God, and He will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for 
today. Guys, it's, it's clear to me, and I think it should be very clear to you, that worry and anxiety, that interchangeable phrases that are used there, is the main point, the undeniable main point of this entire section. With everything around it there to support it and to help us find freedom from the weight and the burden of worry. Corey Tinboom once said it this way about worry that worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it only empties today of its strength. Scholar and professor Robert Mounts stated it a little stronger. He said it this way worry is actually practical atheism, and it's an affront. It is a an affront. It just, it's, it's insulting to God. Guys, in this section that we're dealing with this morning on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, that's where we find ourselves. Chapters 5, 6, 7 again are the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches his disciples, hey, disciples, live with it. You want to, you want to learn how to live for God? Live without Worrying, And I understand as I say that, you're like, that's awesome. That's great that Jesus says that, but that's really hard to do, Ryan. I know it is because I'm a human too and I struggle with worry and anxiety and fear. Guys, anxiety simply refers to care or concern depending on the context. It could be one or the other, that you genuinely care about things or that you're concerned about things. It can refer to legitimate concern or sinful anxiety. But interestingly, doesn't it seem this often happens in our lives that legitimate concerns that we have, noble concerns that we have, can become a way of sinful anxieties entering into our lives? So we fret about it and we stew over it and we think on it again and again and again. Guys, to be anxious really and actually means that you have a, a divided mind. One thought pulls you in one direction and another thought pulls you in another direction. Hope, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ pulls you one way and fear pulls you another. This is the literal idea here, guys, in Matthew chapter 6 behind this word that is used here, worry. Anxiety, it literally means to be pulled apart. That's literally what's happening in our lives. At any moment that we have fears and worries and anxieties, we are being pulled apart. Our English word worry is derived from a German word that means to choke or to strangle. That's pretty graphic, isn't it, guys? You get the idea that worry isn't just some little minor thing that we have in our life. It strangles us. That's what worry does. It's an internal strangulation at the ruthless hands of outcome. Our ultimate outcome in life is not. It is sealed. It is decided. It is finished. Anxiety really, in all things, is an addiction of the heart that we just cannot break cold turkey. I know that like somebody's going to walk out every day and be like, all right, we talked about that worry and anxiety again. It's, it's done today. It doesn't work like that. You don't, you don't break a habit like that. You don't break something that has a stranglehold on you, just cold turkey. Go and do it. And so what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 6 particularly verse 33, as he gives us a remedy for worry, an antidote for anxiety, if you will. What does he say again there in verse 33? I'll boil it down. He says this, 
seek first things first. Most important things need to be your priority. And the question that we ask is, why in the world do we put God and the things of God first? And I know you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's a really obvious question, Ryan. But why? Why do we put the things of God first in our lives? Do you know why? Very, very simple. Because God put us first. Right? What does it say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19? Very famously in familiar verse. We love each other and we love anyways because what? He, God, through Jesus Christ, loved us first. Guys, more than a hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon began a sermon on Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and he simply said these words. There is just as much need for this utterance today as when it first fell from our Savior's lips. Amen? We need these words just as much today as when Jesus said them to his disciples. And that's why Jesus here gives actually nine arguments against anxiety. See, Jesus wasn't just like a free spirit, like just a, let me throw some good pithy phrases and sayings out there. He's a very rational and thoughtful guy. He gives arguments, and I actually want to go through these arguments just really quick from back to front. Verse 34, what does he say? Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow is going to bring its own worries. Verse 33, what does he say there? Everything will be given in your life that is needed in your life. The second part of verse 32, why? Because your father knows all of your needs. That is such an important verse. I would circle that thing and draw arrows to it because that is a rock-solid foundation for us to have our lives built on. Why do we trust God? Because God has always shown up and he has always provided exactly what we need when we need it. First part of verse 32, he says, by the way, the Gentiles, the faithless, unbelieving people of the world are uber, uber concerned with material issues. You need to root that out of your heart is what he says. This long section in verses 28 through 30, God made Solomon look really, really good, but even he doesn't look as good as the flowers and the foliage of this world. And aren't you more valuable than that? I would hope that you think you're more valuable than a flower. Have faith, he says. Why worry about appearances? In verse 27, guys, worry doesn't do anything to bring you the most important things. I love the actual original translation. He says, who by worrying can add a single cubit to their life? Like, if you worry enough, it's going to actually, like, grow you. Like, oh, there we go. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't grow you at all. I actually think that worry and anxiety detracts from your growth in your life, your maturity in life. Verse 26, food. God's got that covered. He's always been a giver when it comes to physical needs. Verse 25, keep a big picture perspective. Eternity trumps earth. That's the major message of this whole section. Eternity trumps earth. God supersedes material concerns. And then in verse 24, going all the way back into that, Guys, going at life in two different ways, living in two different kingdoms, will never, ever work in life. 
It just won't. We talked about that a lot in, in, in week one. Guys, each of these nine reasons, each of these nine arguments is tailor-made for every day of your faith life. Worry, or what is sometimes translated anxious in some of your translations here in Matthew 6, is the Greek word marineo. It's the same word that is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, when Paul says this, don't worry, don't marineo about anything, instead pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. And then listen to this next verse. If you, if you just stopped at verse 6, you'd be missing the payoff. Verse 7 says this. When you do that and you pray and you bring it before the Father and you tell him what you need, the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's God saying here, guys? Not just in Matthew chapter 6, but in Philippians and many other places throughout the Bible, guys. God is telling us, listen, I need you to hear this. The antidote to worry is what? Prayer. Oh, wow. Is it a coincidence that we talked about that last week? No, it's not. Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher, wrote a series of resolutions for his life. As he got into ministry, he wrote down all these things that he was going to do to help govern his life and make sure that he was living for God. And among the most memorable ones are some opening words that he said, and I love these. He says, uh, number one, I will live for God. And then right under it, I actually don't think it's number two, I think it's just 1A. If no one else does... I still will. That needs to be the resolution for all of our lives. Even if everything around me looks like it's going in an opposite direction, everything and everyone around me looks like they're living their life in a different way, I will still live for God. Guys, many of us are so addicted to worry in our lives that if you don't have anything to worry about in your life, what do you do? You worry. That's how it works. Like, you should be at peace if they're like, I'm not really worried or weighed down on anything. And you start thinking, you're like, wait a minute, there's got to be something. I, I'm not forgetting a bill. I forgot to do something. And you start worrying, and it starts all over again. Worry that you've forgotten something. And this is when anxiety kicks in in our life. Merely me mentioning that scenario to you makes you anxious. But what's so amazing about Jesus is he seems to have this holy, unpracticed skill that we have in our lives today. He has this skill to give attention completely just to the present moment. Whatever is in front of Jesus, that's what he's dealing with right then and there. He's not thinking about tomorrow. He's not thinking about two hours down the line. He's thinking about there. He's in that present moment, and he is celebrating the goodness of God right then and there. Guys, if that is not a recipe that we should be applying and putting into our lives, I don't know what is to fight against anxiety and a fight against worry? Jesus assumes here at the end of chapter 6, which I would kind of consider the ending here of chapter 6 to be the golden principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus assumes some things. He assumes truth will win the day. And when truth wins the day, it will change emotions. And in this case, it will change anxiety and worry. Guys, truth works. 
Truth works where it is trusted and it is believed and it is applied. That's why Jesus says, why do you have so little faith? He's essentially saying this, you aren't practicing when I'm preaching. You're listening, but you're not playing it out. You're not believing it really. And so therefore what he says is we need to pray for faith and think on things that will free you from worry and have you living in our key for this morning. If prayer is an antidote, also another antidote to worry is generosity. Nothing will get you outside of your own mind space and worry anxiety like generosity. And this is where I want to shift gears just a little bit because the point here in Matthew is a part of overcoming the anxiety that traps us and saps us in our life is to match the ongoing, spontaneous generosity of God. We should be finding ways in our life, how in the world do I give more of myself, more of my time, more of my talent? And I believe specifically here, Jesus is speaking, all right? We could play this all day long and be like, well, Jesus is talking about a lot of other things we give in our life. He is talking about money, folks. And I'm not going to be here today being like, all right, I'm going to harp on this so that you'll give money. That's not the point of what Jesus is talking about here. It's that we would match the spontaneous generosity of God. That's what's being implied in these very interesting words. If you will look with me, if you're still in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, we read these a couple weeks ago. But he says this, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Again, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, again, listen, hear me. If you're going to follow me, you need to be generous. Because God is generous. Guys, that needs to be our overarching perspective in terms of material things in our life. We need to see God as generous, and we need to be generous too when we realize, and they talked about this in Bible study this morning, it's such an important concept. We need to realize, guys, that God is the source of everything in our lives, and we are just supposed to manage it. We are just managers. We're money managers. It's the concept, the biblical concept of stewardship. And it is among the most important facets of what one author calls the treasure principle. What is the key to this treasure principle? What is this concept that is of utmost importance that we really have to get in our lives? It's what I just said, guys. God is the owner of everything, and we are his money and material and everything managers. And if that's true, and more importantly, if we believe that to be true in our lives, why worry about whether or not we keep or enlarge our territory? God owns all of it. It's not ours. Everything in this life that we feel is lost or reduced in our life, he can provide another avenue and is always interested in our care and in our well-being. But ownership is only one piece of the puzzle. God owns, we manage, and because of that we need to adopt, every one of us, a steward's mentality toward everything God entrusts. And trust, guys, he loans it to us, he does not give it to us. 
You know what a steward is, right, guys? It's an old-timey word, a steward. We don't really use that word anymore. A steward was a person who just essentially managed the assets for the owner's benefit. If you think like I think, I think in movies, I think of Alfred from Batman, the consummate steward, right? I'll give you five bucks. Actually, I'll give you a dollar. If you can tell me Alfred's last name, by the way, just bonus information here. Anybody? Pennyworth, all right? If you didn't know that. And if you did and you didn't say you lost out on a dollar, all right? But it doesn't matter anyway, does it? It's just... Guys, this is what I love about the concept of a steward. And I I love, I've watched enough of the Batman movies with Alfred in it, it, that he carries no entitlement. He simply finds out what the master, what the owner wants him to do, and then he simply does it. Guys, it's exactly what Jesus is calling every one of us to do, isn't he? I don't own anything. I'm not entitled to anything in life. I'm simply just managing it for the master. One day, a a panicked man came riding his horse up to John Wesley, and he said, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. And after thinking for a a few moments, Wesley just simply quipped, no. He says, that's the Lord's house that burned to the ground. That means that that's one less responsibility for me. Guys, that's an eternal perspective. That's not my stuff. Those aren't my things. I am simply just managing them. Guys, this is a truth of living in God's kingdom and operating by God's principles Anxiety and worry is replaced by generosity and giving generously. In fact, the more that we in our lives sacrificially give, the more our delight should be in giving. It brings pleasure to us, but more importantly, it brings pleasure to who? God. He loves to see us give and give and give. Missionary Hudson Taylor says it this way, The less that I spent on myself and the more that I gave away, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. That's why Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8, doesn't he, this concept, this idea of joy. And he says, I really want you guys to be, what's the phrase he uses, to be a cheerful giver. I can't hardly think about that concept without the little children's church song. God loves a cheerful giver. Give it all you got. And if you guys haven't heard that song, you really need to because it's super awesome. I'm sorry. I told you. I, just think, I think in movies and song all the time. That's my life. He says that to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth. Guys, I need for you to understand giving and to be cheerful about it. Now, if we're very honest with ourselves, right? Sometimes we're not very cheerful when it comes to giving sacrificially. Guys, generosity, though, is all about the joy of giving it away. Guys, God uses giving to conform us to his image. Look at Christ long enough, guys, and you'll be compelled to be more of a giver in your life. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. Why? Why would we do that? Because Jesus is the ultimate giver, isn't he? Again, in that section where he calls everybody in the Corinthian church to be a cheerful giver, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says this about God being the ultimate giver. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, 
so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Guys, we have all the riches of not this world, but of heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. Randy Alcorn, the author, says it this way, as thunder follows lightning, joyful giving follows grace. When the lightning of God's grace strikes us, the thunder of our giving should follow. When we are not givers in our life, it means we're not being permeated by his grace and the joy that is inseparable from it. Paul said to the Corinthians a little later in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, do not give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God again loves a person who gives cheerfully. The actual word there is not cheerfully. It's to be a hilarious giver. Anybody in here being a hilarious giver in their life? Like the, what you're doing with your resources is very, very hilarious to the people around you. Like that is silly. Guys, if you can give to the Lord, give hilariously. But here's how it often works in life. The hilarity with our giving doesn't come during or after the giving, or it doesn't come during it, it comes after the giving. And so here's the thing I have to say about this as we come to an end here. Do not wait until you feel like giving because that feeling will never come naturally. This way, I love these words. All of your life, all of my life, we've been on a treasure hunt. We've been on a treasure hunt for the perfect place and the perfect person. And if you are in Christ as you sit here this morning, you have found both of those in Jesus and in eternity in heaven. And in finding Jesus, you've ushered into eternity in heaven, guys. He has rescued you. Jesus has rescued us and he has given us new life. Our salvation isn't dependent on anything that we do. It's about God's gift to you. Guys, being saved from your sins is not about you giving to God. It's about God giving everything to you. Guys, this should instill a joy in us that is far beyond this world, but oftentimes it isn't. It seems that you're missing out on something in life. And Jesus addresses this issue in Matthew chapter 6 here. The treasure principle of life. You cannot take anything with you out of this life, but you can send it on ahead. Guys, the joy that we gain in pursuing lasting treasure is worth the cost of what we might have to give up in this life. I guess you could say that the cost-reward ratio is not only compelling here, but it is truly, truly out of this world. Guys, and rather than the drudgery or the guilt of giving or the anxiety or the worry of not having enough in your life, our eternal sights should be set on the joy of living to give. Again, missionary Jim Elliott said it this way, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Guys, one important application of this passage is not that God will make your finances better if you just trust and pray enough. That's not what this is saying. If you seek him, guys, it is so much better than that. It is that you will stop worrying about your finances. You will stop worrying about possession. You will stop worrying about material things. Came across an illustration that kind of put it this way. I want you to imagine that you lived during the Civil War. 
And you were on the Confederate side, and we know, and you knew, and you could see it coming very clearly, the Confederacy was about to collapse, the Union was about to take everything, and you were holding on to loads and piles of Confederate cash in your life. What would you naturally do if you were a rational, sane person? If you knew, guess what, that money's not going to be worth anything come just a few days from now. We're switching over to U.S. currency. Guys, what would you do? You would cash in all of your excess Confederate money for U.S. currency, the only money that will ultimately have value in just a few days. You'll keep enough Confederate cash on hand to meet your short-term needs in life. Guys, here's the thing about being a Christian. We have all the insider information that we'll ever need. Everything, guys, heaped up on this earth will be worthless whether it comes when Christ comes or when we leave this big blue spinning ball that we call earth. This way, guys, the financial forecast, if you're putting everything that you have into this earth, is very, very bleak. The financial forecast, if you're planning for a future in heaven and you are storing your treasures in heaven and you're sending everything ahead, is eternally optimistic. There's this famous phrase that I've heard many times, but it's so true as we talk about this concept and what we've talked about over the last three weeks now. And it's a very simple phrase that goes like this. We only have one life, and it will soon be the past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Guys, it is so incredibly important that we keep an ultimate eternal perspective for whatever Jesus means here in Matthew 6 as he talks about treasure guys Jesus is our ultimate treasure don't ever forget that a a person Jesus is our first treasure a place heaven is our secondary treasure just think of it as residual benefit. And then in a very distant third, our eternal rewards are the treasure that we lay up in heaven for us. Guys, Jesus here, as he teaches through Matthew chapter 6 and this whole Sermon on the Mount, his teaching is not just right, it is absolutely smart. He doesn't just make an emotional appeal to our hearts. He makes a logical appeal to our minds as well. He says, guys, invest. I want you so desperately to hear this. Invest in what has lasting and unfading value. Guys, we do not at any point live for anything in this world. We are simply just passing through this world and we are living for another one. And what we need to do in our lives, what we need to live in our lives, what we need to model in our lives is the discipline of generosity. And so I don't know, usually when I get to the end of a sermon, I'm like, here's a great, wonderful application point. I don't know what the application point is for you, but there is an application point. I don't know what God is calling you to in your life, and this is not a moment to be like, you know what? Y'all should be given like at least 10% if not. Like, I'm, that's, God's goal in life is not to squeeze more out of you. God's goal in life is to give more to you. And he says you learn to gain more as you give more.
So again, I, I'm going to pray, and I just want you to think for a moment as we come to the end of service this morning, what in the world does it mean in your life? What is God calling you to? And I believe that for some of us, we walked in here this morning, and God was already pressing on us, and he's been working in our hearts way before I started flapping these jaws this morning. What is he calling you to in your life to generously give in, sacrificially give in? Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask this morning that each one of us would consider that those are big, big things to consider from Matthew chapter 6, all that we've talked about the last few weeks, and it culminates in this morning as we consider what it means in our lives in any sort of way. It doesn't always mean monetary things, but potentially and possibly maybe what you're calling us to is that we would just give more of our lives in serving you, in serving others, in giving our lives to make sure that others know you and worship you. So Lord, as we end this service this morning. May we not just walk away from here unchanged. May we not just walk away from here with just good thoughts and good ideas and good sayings, but Lord, we would walk away from here convicted and challenged, encouraged to see your generosity, to see your goodness in our lives, and that we are just simply trying to be conduits that are passing that along to everybody else in our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things.